my whole basement's become my whiskey room now. It's a disaster down there. I'm just desperately trying to get rid of bottles. Hi, and welcome to On and Off, our podcast covering the on-premise and off-premise beverage alcohol industry. I'm Melissa Dowling, editor of Cheers. And I'm Kyle Swartz, editor of Beverage Dynamics Magazine. Today, we're going to be talking about whiskey, and we have a special guest joining us, spirits expert, speaker, and journalist, Maggie Kimbrell, who's uh, one of the uh, real leading voices in American whiskey journalism, also a cigar expert, and also the president of Bourbon Women Association. everybody thanks for having me <laughs> i i didn't even know about the cigar part that's oh yeah that's pretty impressive <laughs> <laughs> in addition to all the bottles you can see i also have cigars all over my desk so <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> i really need to clean up this weekend <laughs> um well why don't we just start with the big picture or major trend, which is the ongoing whiskey boom. You know, the category has been on fire for so many years and really showing little signs of slowing. Um, you know, it can't continue at this pace forever, but what do you see happening with the whiskey category? Well, first and foremost, I really hate to hear fire and whiskey in the same sentence, um, but I think that it definitely Sorry. fits in this case, right? <laughs> so people are talking about boom and fire and, and, and like, we don't like to hear that, but you know, it's absolutely true. So there's been a big whiskey boom going on. Um, probably started about 15 to 20 years ago. Um, you know, there were some grassroots kind of efforts among the distillers in Kentucky in, in particular to kind of elevate the, um, the presence of bourbon on the global market. So there was this like kind of perception that scotch is the whiskey and bourbon is this kind of less than, you know, blue collar, you know, kind of a thing. And they're like, hey, well, this bourbon is actually just as good as the scotch and actually you're aging the scotch in a lot of our barrels. So you must like it. Uh, so there are a lot of reasons why that boom kind of took off, um, you know, and it was really just the distillers looking around saying, this is actually a good product and people just need to know about it. Uh, so that's kind of what, you know, sparked that fire, if you will. Um, <laughs> nice one. <laughs> uh, to, carry, to carry the metaphor. Um, and so it, it's really been interesting to watch uh, this growth in this cat in in really American whiskey as a whole kind of take off, particularly over the last ten years. So 11, uh, 11 plus years ago, I was working actually in a liquor store, and so this is like kind of when all of this started to take off, and quit my job and and decided to start writing about whiskey for a living, and um, you know it. it just watching the progression. So there was the elevation of just really distillers going into places and telling people this is the product that we, that we make and this is why you should care about it. Um, you know, there are people who are finding it because, you know, I was really into the farm, to, still am really into the farm to table movement. And, you know, at one point I looked over at the liquor aisle and I was like, hey, that bourbon stuff is made down the street. Maybe I should figure out what that's all about. Um, you know, so there are a lot of different segues for people to get into this category. And as bourbon grew as a category, then other uh, American whiskey styles began to really make a comeback. So you look at rye whiskey and rye whiskey was kind of part of that cocktail boom associated with the rise of bourbon. And so the craft cocktail folks really kind of pushed rye, rye whiskey back into, you know, being because, you know, there were a lot of 
uh, distilleries that did not make rye anymore. Wild Turkey made rye one day a year. Um, you know, it, it was really just like Sazerac, Wild Turkey, Jim Beam, Heaven Hill. Um, MGP. I can't, and yeah, it, of course, yeah. Who can forget MGP? But like that, you know, it was really a handful of people making rye uh, 15 years ago. And now you look at the, the rye shelf and it's just full. So, you know, you have to kind of look at, there are a lot of different reasons why that, <clears throat> that expansion took place. And then you have the craft boom on top of that. So a lot of regulations kind of eased that made it, uh, you know, easier and more feasible for craft distilleries to come online. And then they started saying, well, you know what, we can't compete with Kentucky bourbon. So we need to figure out a way to put our own stamp on this. And that kind of snowballed into uh, categories like American single malt whiskey, um, you know, which is just a really huge category right now that's growing by leaps and bounds. Um, and people are putting, you know, their philosophical and regional uh, stamps on these products that they're making in that category. So really just American whiskey as a whole is uh, full of just all kinds of innovation and, um, you know, production and people just getting into this for various reasons and finding their own niche and finding their own their own place in the market. Uh, and you know, it's it's nice to see because um, you know bourbon was kind of one thing for a while, and it was you know a lot of it was perception because you know a lot of people say it was old you know old white men blue collar yada yada. There have always been women drinking bourbon. There have always been women working in bourbon and so on and so forth. And I think that's one of the things that has really come out of it is that we're kind of looking at it in a different light now, retrospectively. Um, and so for the future, you know, there are still a lot of reasons why people are going to get into this category from a production standpoint. There are a lot of um, markets that people are still opening up. And so, you know, when you look at the international market for American uh, whiskey, up until the trade war started, it was growing very rapidly. Yep. Once the trade war started, that kind of cut a lot of people off. Um, and then, you know, the global pandemic really slowed some things there as well. Um, and so, you know, there's still a lot of opportunity to get out into that uh, global market. There's a huge market for American spirits. China is probably one of the fastest growing markets for American whiskeys right now. Um, Australia has been one of the target fast growing markets. Um, India is you know not only making really great whiskey but they're also consuming uh more whiskey than they have in the past so you know there's a lot of opportunity to get out there and open up additional markets which has the potential to continue to kind of fuel this boom along uh but we need to take care of some things first such as the trade war and you know get the pandemic in our rearview mirror yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you talked about all these different avenues for growth. I want to say when I was in uh, Kentucky recently and got a chance to see you at Rabbit Hole Distillery, great catching yep. up as always. Uh, but one thing I noticed is just how much construction was going on at all of the distilleries. I mean, Buffalo Trace was doubling the size of their production and quadrupling the size of their visitor center. Heaven Hill just opened their enormous visitor center, a $19 million visitor center. Uh, Barton 1792 was doubling production. Everybody just was um, skyrocketing their production capabilities. And I guess you already kind of answered this, but clearly you don't have any fears that we're producing too much bourbon or too much whiskey, excuse me. 
Well, I mean, you know, that that's contingent on a few different factors, right? Because we already talked about the trade war and the coronavirus pandemic and things like that. As far as consumer demand, I think it's going to continue to be there if we can get it into those markets where that demand is happening, right? Uh, but to kind of backtrack a little bit, you know, it's not the production that you want to look at, it's the warehousing. And Buffalo Trace in particular, they are breaking ground for a new warehouse. I think they said every uh, eight months, nine months. And those are huge warehouses. I think they're 30 or 40,000 barrel capacity warehouses. They bought an entire farm up on the hill above where Buffalo Trace is. And they're, every time they finish a warehouse, they break ground for a new one. And then you kind of look even at the smaller distilleries, Kentucky Artisan Distillery is in the same boat. Every time they finish a warehouse, they have to start another one because they keep running out of space. Uh, you know, and those are folks who are doing stuff on a contract basis. Um, so it, everybody from, you know, the big guys who are making, who are only making whiskey for themselves all the way down to, you know, smaller to medium distilleries that are making some for themselves, some for other people, everybody's adding warehousing. Angels Envy adding warehousing. Everybody is adding warehousing right now. And so I think that, you know, one way or another, they're going to find something to do with all that whiskey. So, you know, I, I, I think we're going to be sitting pretty here. And you, know, and, and you also have to look at the fact that not too long ago, there was a shortage because, uh, you know, the when the boom really started to take off, people were kind of inching up production because they were like, yeah, let's get a little more popular. We'll make a little bit more this year, a little bit more next year. Um, but once they got to the point where, you know, those barrels were aged and ready to be bottled, that demand had far outstripped whatever they had forecasted, you know, six, eight, 10 years ago. Um, so we're really kind of just coming out of that. And it's going to be really interesting to see how the market responds to being able to actually find the things that you're looking for on a consistent basis. Yeah. Speaking of that, I'm, I am not a bourbon hunter, but you know, that's definitely a thing right now. Sure. I know people who camp. Yeah. They have like yeah. RVs and stuff in the camp. Absolutely. Yeah, Kyle, no. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I only camped once. And that was for a snowflake um, strand of hands. And that was on an assignment. Thank you very much. Me and Lou Bryson were drinking um, coffee with whiskey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Four in the morning. It was a great experience. Oh my gosh. I, I kind of wonder how much of that is, you know, whiskey nerds having some fun versus consumer enthusiasts, you know, maybe people get just getting into the category or learning more who are really frustrated by not being able to find, you know, what they want. Well, it's a combination of things, right? So everybody has their own, their own motives and their own, you know, level of interest in the category. Some people are even buying it as an investment. Um, so you see a lot of reasons why people are going after these sought after, you know, rare bottles or, you know, special releases and things like that. People camp out and they, you know, try to get their hands on whatever they can. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, people who police etiquette as far as, you know, the camping out. So you'll have groups that'll say, you know, hey, don't let this guy in if you see him because he's just having his grandma sit in his spot for 24 hours to get a bottle to flip on the black market. So there are people who are like really passionate about it because they, you know, love to collect and love the category. And then there are people who get in there and they're like maybe not so passionate about anything but the, you know, the money on the flip side. So it's, it's a wide range. Absolutely. I mean, I won't name what major distillery it was, but when I was in Louisville, I saw, you know, a line out the door every single morning uh, earlier than they said it would start. And then I saw people flipping bottles in the parking lot. 
the first people who bought the bottles brought them right out and flipped them to people uh, back in the line. Yeah. And I mean, that can be really frustrating, right? Because if you actually love something and you're just really hopeful that you're going to get a bottle and you see somebody, you know, standing in line and selling it in the parking lot, that's really disheartening because you're like, well, I can't take off work and do that, or I can't pay that secondary price. And so I think as the supply catches up, we're going to see less and less of that. Uh, You know, we've we've definitely seen in in the not so distant past, a lot of the distilleries, uh, you know, speaking out against the flippers or taking some sort of action against flippers uh, because, you know, technically it's illegal and uh, you know, it's, it's also not cool. Yeah. Um, So bourbon is obviously still huge right now, but what other types of American whiskey are getting more popular? You know, I, I, I'm hearing, seeing a lot of Tennessee whiskey coming out. Sure, um, yeah. American single malts. There was a lot of talk about those um, a few years ago. But, you know, what's what's trending right now? I think probably the thing that I'm most excited about right now is the American single malt category. I love rye whiskey, and that's still definitely growing. You know, mm-hmm. in terms of the cocktail boom, I think rye whiskey is a really great uh, base for a lot of whiskey cocktails because uh, it is, you know, a lot more bold and spicy. But then you you can also get rye whiskeys that are closer to bourbon flavor profiles all the way up to rye whiskeys that are like, you know, 95 or 100% rye that are big and bold and spicy. So there's a, there's a lot of uh, variation there. Um, as far as American single malt goes, I think one of the reasons why I'm so excited about this is, you know, like I mentioned before, the regional and philosophical variations in rye whiskey. So in the American Southeast, one of the other places that Kyle and I have been together is uh, the distillery in Virginia, Copper Fox. And Rick Wassmond is doing some really interesting stuff there as far as smoking his, he has his own malting floor and his own uh, malt smoking operation. And so he is putting kind of a regional, you know, Southern Virginia spin on American single malts by smoking those malts with peach wood, apple wood, you know, other fruit woods, as opposed to, you know, what you would traditionally think of as a malt whiskey being smoked with peat. Uh, so it's a definitely a, a really different flavor profile uh, from what you expect. And it's kind of that, that regional stamp of, you know, yes, this is representing the American South. If you go out to the Southwest, you're seeing a lot of distilleries that are smoking their malt with um, mesquite wood, which is native to that area. And, you know, you get a lot of that in the barbecue. So why not put it into the, uh, into the whiskey? And so those are some really interesting whiskeys that are coming out, you know, that are saying, Hey, this is our interpretation of the, you know, this is our regional kind of interpretation of this whiskey category. And then you go to like the Pacific Northwest. So the folks at Westward Whiskey, they all come from brewing backgrounds. It's really interesting. They all worked in breweries before they decided to start a distillery or work at a distillery. And so, you know, barley malt grows really well there. And, you know, I was talking to uh, uh, Christian who, who was one of the founders and he was talking about, you know, like, if I wanted corn, I'd have to ship it in from the Midwest. So why would I do that when I've got all this barley that I can use? And so, you know, their focus is really just a really clean, crisp American style, uh, American single malt where they don't smoke their, their malt at all. Um, it's just malted. And then they go through this process, you know, they go through the, the traditional um, process and they're producing th- something and they put it into 
I think they do. They started off varying between, if I remember correctly, used in a new cooperage. And I think now they pretty much exclusively do new cooperage, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and so it's really just a big, bold American version of single malt whiskey. So it's really interesting to see all of these different interpretations of what that means as a category. And, you know, there, there's no, um, there's no standard of identity for American single malt in the TTB's um, guidebook. And that's one of the things we have an American single malt whiskey commission that is trying to change that. But right now it's kind of like the wild west of American single malt and people can do like pretty much anything they want to. You can make a, a, an American single malt that is just like a scotch whiskey with peat. You know, we have peat here in, in the United States and Canada. Uh, you know, we can grow all that, all, all that barley and malt it. There are malting houses. Um, but, you know, it's really interesting to see that because there's just so much that people can do with that category that kind of sets them apart from, you know, the Kentucky bourbon industry, uh, but also kind of parrots their success by coming up with a, a, something that's really regional. And I think, you know, really the most interesting thing about that in this day and age where you can, you know, click a few buttons and get something, you know, sent to your house from pretty much anywhere, something that is really regionally uh, representative is becoming, I think, harder to come by. And that's, you know, another one of the reasons why I think it's, it's uh, such a great move for so many distilleries. Absolutely. And we should also mention here, you know, you mentioned Pete, you know, I, I think of Westland up in the Pacific uh, Northeast, sure. of course, uh, you know, one of the American single malt pioneers doing some very interested peated, very interesting peated uh, single malts. Uh, you mentioned the TTB and the confusion or the lack thereof of a definition with the TTB, which is the classic story with American single malt. Uh, and I tend to think that that helps bring a lot of consumer confusion into the category, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. And I think uh, what will help American single malt grow is once that consumer confusion starts to go away, just your thoughts on when you'll see that. Well, so it, it seems like they've been talking about, um, you know, coming up with a definition and lobbying to get this definition added. And I think there was a little bit of movement right as that pandemic was hitting and it kind of got derailed a little bit for more important things. Uh, but the fact that there's any interest in adding that at all is a good, pretty good indication that this will probably happen at some point in the not so distant future. Um, so, you know, like you said, consumer confusion is a, is a big issue. So even in bourbon, there is a lot of interpretation that can go on there, right? So you can have, uh, you know, bourbon that's made with different varietals of corn and different varietals of grain. And, and, you know, there, there is still some, uh, interpretation that can take place there. And, you know, when this was really, when this boom was really starting to take off and people outside of Kentucky were really making uh, bourbon for the first time and sometimes selling some stuff that was, you know, not aged long enough or maybe not blended very well, not really the best representation of bourbon as a category, there were some distillers who were like, hey, this is going to create consumer confusion, you know, because they've always known that bourbon is this one thing. And like now it's becoming all these other things too. And so, you know, we don't want that confusion. So it, it was incredibly heartening to see so many distilleries after that saying, you know, we can't compete with Kentucky bourbon. We shouldn't be trying to compete with Kentucky bourbon. So they started to come up with their own like kind of regional styles and regional variations. And so, you know, really when it, it comes down to it, it'll be interesting to see what they're, they're proposing some, uh, kind of 
debatable changes to that language, right? So they're saying that, um, for instance, it would have to be 100% malt, which would, you know, obviously single malt. Uh, there, there are definitions for other kinds of malt, um, you know, where it's like a malt whiskey has to be 51% malt. Uh, but then they're saying, you know, it has to be uh, new cooperage only, no used cooperage, which is kind of a stylistic choice for a lot of people that might vary from what they're doing currently. Um, you know, they're, they're specifying uh, a barrel, which is actually not specified in Kentucky bourbon. It's a, it's a charred new oak container. And they're also specifying uh, the size. So a lot of folks are out there making whiskey in, you know, five gallon, 10 gallon, 15 gallon barrels because they feel like it's going to age faster or mature faster. Uh, whereas in the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission, they're saying it should be about 50 gallons, which is a standard 53 uh, gallon container. So it'll be really interesting to see how all of that plays out. And I think it's probably going to happen, you know, maybe within the next five years. Yeah. Well, we are almost out of time, but we can't let you go without talking about some of the women in the industry, um, you know, who helped shape it and who continue to, to, uh, to do that. So who are some of your personal heroes in the American whiskey uh, bourbon industry? Well, you know, there, there are a lot of them, right? Um, so we talked about Mary Dowling a little bit before we started recording. Um, she Yay, was Mary really... <laughs> she she was kind of one of the women pioneers uh she she didn't need no man uh she really did her own thing and that was really you know and people like um you know margie samuels put a huge um you know, made a huge contribution to the future of bourbon. You know, one of the reasons why it was able to make such a great comeback was because of Margie Samuels. Uh, you know, Peggy No Stevens is is obviously you know the godmother of of uh, bourbon right now, and she's just an amazing, amazing person. Uh, you get to work so with Peggy many... No Stevens at American. I Woods do. Day. I wanted I to ask do. you what that what's that like working with Peggy No Stevens on a regular. You know basis? what? I've been actually working with her for a long time because she's actually also one of my tasters on the magazine. I'm also the content editor of American Whiskey Magazine, and and so uh, I've been working with her for quite a while. And you know, she's she's just a really great uh, great person, and she is always willing to lend a helping hand to any any women in the industry and you know I've really kind of you know since I became the president of the Bourbon Women Association which she founded I've been able to kind of snowball that effect so there are two things that I'm working on right now um, that are going to potentially create the next uh, wave of women leaders and so one of them is my um, Meet the Makers series on the Bourbon Women blog and every week I feature a different woman in different aspects of the quote unquote brown water industry. And so this is a lot of uh, women distillers, women who are, you know, uh, people who are coopers and, you know, work in distilleries, maybe founded distilleries, uh, master blenders, tasters, and so on and so forth. And that kind of came out of frustration because when I first became the president of the Bourbon Women Association in January of this year, everybody was like, well, what's it like being a woman in a male dominated industry? And I was like, but it's not like, there are lots of women. We're just not getting the credit, you know? Absolutely. So I was like, well, I'm going to give these ladies the credit. So that's one of the things I've been working on. The other thing that I'm working on is 
our Amber Circle, uh, which is a training uh, program that the Bourbon Women is actually going to be announcing next week at our symposium. Uh, And and we are going to be fundraising to be able to train women in different aspects of working in the distilled spirits industry, starting with Stave and Thief Executive Bourbon Steward Certification. And then hopefully next year, we'll be able to actually send some women to Moonshine University to learn distilling. So uh, bourbonwomen.org, you can check on the Amber Circle tab at the top to learn more about that. And we would love to have your donations if that's something you're willing to support. And then bourbonwomen.org, the um, Make Meet the Maker series is right there on the front page as well. So I'd love to have everybody check that out. Absolutely. Someone who's been reading the Meet the Maker series, it's, it's an excellent, uh, really excellent uh, piece of work you got going on there. I've really been enjoying it. Thank you. It. This has been really great. Um, I want to thank you, Maggie, for joining us today. And um, thank all of you out there for listening to On and Off today. And uh, join us next time. Sorry, Maggie, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Maggie, for joining us. And Maggie, nobody works harder than Maggie. He's a real pro's pro. So really do appreciate you taking time out of your extremely busy schedule for this. My pleasure. And uh, join us next time when we're going to be delving a little bit deeper into women in the overall beverage alcohol industry and their impact on both the retail and restaurant alcohol worlds. Until then, cheers. Cheers, everyone. Fantastic. I'm going to stop recording.